Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. My name is Elizabeth Weiss, and I am the audiovisual specialist here at Missouri Farm Bureau, and you're about to hear a special episode of our podcast. The 2020 Commodity Conference was held completely virtually over Zoom this year, and you're about to hear a recorded session from the Commodity Conference. If you're interested in watching the full video of the Zoom call of this session or seeing the slides from the presenter, you can find all that information on mofb.org slash events slash commodity. Thanks for listening. Good morning again, everyone. Uh, we're ready for section session number six of our virtual commodity conference. I thank you all for joining us. Um, format is different than we did used before, as obviously we're having different sessions. Uh, this one will end at 10 and we'll begin the next one uh, immediately after, but you will have to log out and log back on uh, if you're using Zoom. Obviously not a problem if you're uh, on Facebook Live. Uh, you can ask a question uh, anytime during the presentation by typing in the question and answer session on Zoom. Uh, if you're on a conference call or if you're on the phone, please uh, push star nine and uh, well, we will... Uh, We'll get to your question wherever it is in the queue. Uh, our speaker this morning uh, is Zell Fisher. He's an associate judge at the Supreme Court of Missouri. Uh, he was appointed to the Supreme Court in October 2008, uh, retained in 2010 election uh, for a 12-year term expiring in 2022. Prior to becoming a judge of the Supreme Court, uh, Zell was a trial judge, trial lawyer in Northwest Missouri, where he was born and raised and still resides today. More about that later. He's a frequent lecturer to judges and lawyers regarding the intersection of science and the law, as well as constitutional issues and professional ethics. And is also actively involved in presenting constitutional forums at high schools, colleges, universities, where he impresses upon the students the prominent importance of protect, promoting the rights guaranteed by the Constitution. Uh, Zell and I uh, share a grandson. Uh, his daughter's married to my son. Uh, and the other thing we share uh, is a great deal of gratitude that Levi, our grandson, uh, looks like his grandmother's. <laughs> uh, and you can see how important that is as you look at me and as you see our next speaker, Zell Fisher. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here uh, with you today. And uh, we're going to give you a little overview on your court system. Uh, the title is, is Court System 101. We're going to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the federal system and the state system and how they uh, work together. Uh, if you uh, do have a question about the federal system, I'll try to take a little pause after I deal with that to, to deal with that, or I can deal with questions at the end. Um, <clears throat> the framers of our uh, Constitution provided that uh, the Constitution itself created the Supreme Court of the United States and said such inferior courts as Congress may provide. And the screen that's on the, the, the slide that's on the screen right now shows you a diagram of our current federal system. And it's been this way for quite some time. Uh, the country is divided into 13 federal circuits. When we talk about the federal system, uh, circuits are courts of appeal. You'll find that when we talk about circuits, when we get to the state court, that that's our trial courts. But uh, the federal circuit has 13 circuits and we have 94 district courts. 
In the federal system, your trial courts are known as district courts. But uh, uh, in any event, uh, our framers only uh, created one uh, court, the Supreme Court of the United States and such inferior courts as Congress will provide. Now, we all know that our federal government was intended to be a limited government. And uh, so federal courts have limited powers. The slide that you're looking at right now just gives you an instant overview of how the Supreme Court of the United States comes to hear its cases. And we can talk more about that later. But if you look at the left side of that slide, you see there are these trial courts where everything starts. And then it goes up to the federal district courts. And then eventually, very few cases by by right to direct bill the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, they have a lot, most of their cases are discretionary. Uh, and so they get to uh, they get to pick a lot of the types of cases that they hear, although there is a direct appeal uh, jurisdiction to the federal courts. Uh, each circuit has several appellate judges, but they sit in three judge panels. Uh, district courts, uh, you know, they, they hear the case one-on-one uh, -on -one, and then all for really since almost the beginning of time, our Supreme Court of the United States always hears their cases in bank. When we talk about the Supreme Court of Missouri, you'll see that we hear our cases in bank too. That means all of us sit at the same time. Uh, but courts of appeals often, uh, whether in state court or in federal court, sit in panels of three. You see that uh, the Supreme Court of the United States can take cases that come through the federal courts or through the state courts. Uh, the only way that a case uh, would not have the ability to go all the way to the Supreme Court uh, as somebody might say if they're angry about what happened at the trial court level, is that if the state Supreme Court decides an issue on an independent and adequate state ground, uh, even if there's a uh, juicy uh, uh, federal issue involved in the case, the Supreme Court of the United States has pretty consistently uh, stayed out of and not taken cases from uh, state Supreme Courts if they've decided it on an independent and adequate state grounds. Um, for years, state Supreme Court justices paid no attention to that in the sense that they just decided their cases without regard to whether or not they would be appealed or not. But I've noticed in the last uh, five to 10 years, state Supreme Courts often look for an independent and adequate reason to decide their cases in addition to the federal question. And I think some of that is, uh, is, is purposely done to avoid uh, further federal review. Now, um, I've been wrong a lot in my life, so it doesn't bother me. In fact, uh, uh, I'm, I'm happy to have them review my paperwork uh, anytime. Uh, but you do see some state Supreme Courts uh, looking for independent and adequate uh, grounds to decide some of their cases. So uh, the federal court has some specialty courts uh, that you might have heard of. And oftentimes the judges in these courts are, are specialists. So you got your tax courts, your military court, uh, United States Courts of Veterans Appeals, all those are specialty courts. So uh, income tax cases, federal income tax cases, military discipline, things like that are always heard in the federal courts. And then uh, of course, all bankruptcies are heard in the federal court because they're created by uh, federal statute. But there are two primary ways that uh, cases get or start in the federal court. The, they either involve what's called a federal question, which means the issue involved or the cause of action that's created comes directly from the Constitution of the United States 
or from a federal statute. So if it's, if it, not that state courts can't hear those, oftentimes they can, there's dual jurisdiction, but uh, you can always file in federal court if there's a federal question involved. The other uh, way is, of course, if the United States government is a party. So some of you might be familiar with the, the flood litigation that's, that's occurred throughout the, the Midwest against the, whenever the United States is a party, the case is heard in federal court. Uh, the other way that the federal courts get a lot of their cases, and keep in mind, uh, the last statistics I saw were that the federal courts only hear about 5% of our cases. 95% of the legal questions and cases are resolved in our state courts. But the other way that, that the federal courts get a lot of their cases is called diversity of jurisdiction. And it generally involves when there's a citizen in one state uh, has, a, has a lawsuit against a citizen of another state. And so uh, surprise, surprise, back when uh, all these statutes were created, there was some thought that the state courts of one state might not be fair to the citizen of another state. Now that seems kind of foreign to me, but if you're familiar with the uh, Tiger-Jayhawk rivalry, you can see how that might uh, come into play. And uh, so uh, we've always provided a mechanism that if you were suing somebody from another state or getting sued, uh, there was a way to deal with that by the federal court. Um, so that, would, that might mean if that exists, that you could file the, the case to begin with in federal court. And that might also, there's a thing called removal. If you were sued by somebody uh, from another state, you could remove your case to federal court. So it's kind of a release valve if uh, somebody might think that uh, they can't get a fair shake uh, in their state courts. Now, interestingly enough, that diversity of jurisdiction has a monetary threshold. So this statute's been on the books when when $75,000 was oodles, gobs, and bunches of money, uh, but that's never changed. So Congress has never, they could easily do that. Congress could raise that amount to be half a million dollars or a million dollars. And in today's dollars, that might actually be more realistic as to what it set out. But uh, Congress has left in place uh, this idea of uh, diversity jurisdiction. The, uh, uh, the federal question, again, we talked about that briefly. That's anything, any cause of action that would arise out of the United States uh, Constitution uh, or a federal statute. So there are some federal crimes, although most uh, crimes are dealt with uh, in the state courts. Uh, bank robbery, for example, has always been a federal crime. Most of the federal crimes relate to uh, interstate commerce and have some dealing with interstate commerce. So kidnapping that starts in Missouri or ends up in Kansas or starts in Illinois and ends up in Missouri. Those have traditionally been uh, uh, federal crimes because the authority of a state court uh, judge pretty much ends at the state line. So there have always been a, a, a small number at least of uh, federal crimes and also uh, uh, federal uh, civil actions, primarily dealing with the interstate commerce. Uh, to give you another example, suits between states are always heard in federal courts. Um, there was a, an issue sometimes with state boundaries. It doesn't happen as often now, but you know, the Missouri River, for example, Mississippi River changes uh, channel from time to time. And so if states would get into litigation about uh, what what belongs to who, that would be in federal court. 
Uh, in Missouri, there's a there's a there's a place up in northwest Missouri called McKissick's Island. That there was a dispute between uh, Missouri and Nebraska regarding the state boundary when the water changed. And then years later, so the Supreme Court of the United States actually drew the legal description of McKissick's Island. And years later, we had a boundary a commission where we decided to kind of give them everything on their side of the river and Nebraska decided to give us everything on our side of the river. But McKissick's Island could not be given away because that, for example, that legal description was drawn by the Supreme Court of the United States in a federal question case. So just a little bit of Northwest Missouri trivia. We'll, we'll question you about that at the end of the presentation. Um, again, this is uh, the diversity of jurisdiction that I talked about, the other way that federal courts get cases. Uh, the, uh, again, the, the key there is that the damages have to be in excess of $75,000. Um, there's uh, some other examples of uh, federal questions are admiralty law. Uh, if you received a traffic ticket in Yellowstone, for example, that's on federal land, that would be a federal case. But uh, pretty much uh, all federal jurisdiction is limited to those uh, cases that arise out of federal statutes, the Constitution, or lawsuits between citizens of different states. Um, in my view, no presentation of the legal system is really complete without some discussion about uh, judicial appointments and how that occurs. Uh, when the framers of our Constitution uh, were putting together uh, uh, how, to, how to select judges and how the federal system uh, should operate, one of the things that, that they thought was a hallmark of judicial independence, in other words, that the judge could always do what the judge thought was right to do under the facts and law was lifetime tenure. And so if you're appointed uh, to the federal bench, whether it's at the district court, the circuit court of the appeals, the Supreme Court of the United States, you have lifetime tenure. Uh, I don't think it was anticipated that judges would try to live out their terms when they picked, picked this as, a, as, a, as an item of judicial independence, but it was to ensure that there wouldn't be retribution, political retribution, based upon the decision of one case. Uh, so, the, but the way that you would get appointed as a federal judge uh, requires appointment by the President of the United States. That's for every trial judge all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, generally nominated by the senators in the home state where the judicial position is open and then subject to uh, Senate confirmation. Uh, we've seen recently that that Senate confirmation a process is uh, highly uh, politicized. And uh, I think that's as a result of the fact that uh, uh, when you're appointed a federal judge, you serve uh, for a life term. Um, an interesting, and then I'll try to remember to uh, uh, talk about this when I talk about the Missouri Supreme Court, but there seems to be a lot of weight uh, that pundits put on who's the author of these opinions. Uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I think that too much weight is given to that. So just, uh, just so that you know how that's chosen, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court gets to pick who authors the decisions in that court. If the Chief Justice is not in the majority, then the most senior justice in the majority gets to decide who writes the opinion. 
So I think a lot of lay people too much to put too much significance on who the author is. But in case you wondered, that is how it gets. Uh, that is how it gets decided. Now, does anybody have any questions about uh, federal court? What types of cases they hear? What by jurisdiction? That's just another way to think about the power of the types of cases that they hear. Again, uh, the federal courts get all the press, but us lowly state Supreme Court judges do most of the work. Uh, they hear about 5% of the cases, we hear 95% of the cases. Uh, you also primarily hear about the cases where there's huge uh, divergence in opinion, uh, five, four splits and so forth. Uh, even the Supreme Court of the United States have a significant number of their cases that are unanimous, probably at least 65% of their cases. Most of those will be in, in regard to those cases uh, that you have a direct appeal. Um, before we go on, I'll, I'll give a little uh, talk about how the Supreme Court of the United States decides to hear their cases. Uh, there's, a, there's a doctrine called the writ of certiorari. So the Supreme Court of the United States, again, doesn't have to hear a lot of cases and uh, Monthly, they receive petitions from lawyers uh, in, who are unsuccessful at state Supreme Courts or who are unsuccessful at federal circuits, asking them to take their case. And uh, what they try to do is convince the judges of the United States Supreme Court that their case is generally interesting and important to the entire nation, or that there's a split between the circuits of the United States. And uh, I think that uh, uh, Certainly, when there's a true circuit split, and there oftentimes is on close questions, that the Supreme Court of the United States ought to grant certiorari on those cases. Uh, they seem to do it slower than, than I think that they should, because the law ought to be the same, whether you're in the First Circuit, the Eighth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and so on. And, and uh, when we get to talk about the Supreme Court of Missouri, I'll tell you how we deal with that. But uh, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States is a lot more strategic about the cases that they do decide to take, they seem to let uh, differences between the circuits percolate a lot more than we would do here in the, in the Missouri Supreme Court. Did you have a question, Blake? Okay. Yeah, so the uh, federal claims court, how many uh, takings cases? Uh, I don't know by numbers, but uh, there's a lot more uh, uh, takings cases than, were, than, than historically. Uh, that, that there, because there are different, uh, uh, there are more creative avenues to try to, to plead a takings case in the federal courts than there, than there once was. Previously, you know, it was uh, uh, fairly limited to what, more like eminent domain and, and topics like that. Although eminent domain is a very hot topic in state Supreme Courts. And in Missouri, within the last four or five years, we had a, a, uh, a case that percolated up uh, to us, not on a constitutional basis, but on a, uh, uh, a state statute, which uh, uh, waded into the issue about whether or not uh, commercial development is an appropriate uh, as an appropriate use of the uh, uh, condemnation, government powers of condemnation. Okay. Well, I will uh, move on into the state court system. Again, this is where all the, uh, most of the cases are heard. Uh, state courts are not of limited jurisdiction. They are of uh, general jurisdiction. So state courts hear uh, 
the same types of cases in federal court. You could file it in state court, dual jurisdiction, but they also hear everything else. So everything from uh, every civil case, uh, every criminal case, almost all of those cases uh, can begin in state courts. Uh, the, uh, every time the legislature passes a new statute, uh, lots of times new causes of, of, causes of action are created. Our state legislature also has the ability to remove causes of action. So in addition to uh, statutory causes of action, we have traditional common law causes of action that our American courts have uh, inherited from, uh, from the European countries where, uh, where we have some of our heritage. The uh, state courts have fewer uh, specialty courts. The slide that you're looking at uh, now talks about uh, some of the state courts. Uh, we have treatment courts, uh, DWI courts, drug courts, juvenile courts, uh, veterans courts. So uh, over the course of time, a society and our citizens, which is really the courts constituencies, have started looking to the courts, not just to resolve disputes, but, but to deal with social problems. Uh, such as addiction or uh, some of the mental health issues that come with some of our veterans and uh, alcohol and drug abuse. Um, traditionally, things like that, if somebody became incompetent, would have been dealt with in our probate courts through guardianships or so forth. But um, in response to really uh, uh, citizens asking us to create problem-solving courts as opposed to just resolving uh, cases, we have developed some specialty courts that deal with mental health, veterans issues, drug issues, alcohol abuse issues. They aren't really specialty courts in the sense of jurisdiction like the federal specialty courts where all tax cases have a certain uh, track. These are really divisions of our circuit courts. So our circuit courts have created special divisions Oftentimes they have judges who have special training to deal with uh, issues that might uh, frequently show up in veterans courts or drug courts. Uh, let's see the next slide. So uh, circuit courts are our trial courts in the state system. If you look at the slide that's there in front of you, uh, you see that our state is divided up much like the country was divided up into circuits. We have 45 circuits in, our, in the state of Missouri. Some of our circuits are just one county, if you look at the metropolitan areas. So for example, uh, Jackson County is its own circuit, Platte County is its own circuit, Clay County is its own circuit. The city of St. Louis is its own circuit, uh, St. Louis County, Greene County. And uh, so our metropolitan areas uh, have enough uh, court business, if you will, that it might be its own circuit. And then if you go to the more rural areas, like up in Northwest Missouri, where Blake and I live, our circuit is made up of five counties. Uh, so anyway, we have 45 circuits across the state. Of the 115 counties, uh, every, every county in the city of St. Louis has at least one courthouse. And we th think that's important from an access of justice issue. Also our constitution currently provides that at least each, each county has at least one associate circuit judge. And again, I think that's important from an access to justice issue. 
whether you're in the metropolitan area or in a rural area, uh, some judge is on duty 24-7 to issue a search warrant, uh, to issue an order of protection if there's a domestic violence issue. So court's always open. There's always a judge wherever you live that's always on duty. And uh, in the rural areas, each county uh, has uh, at least one associate circuit judge. And if that judge would happen to be on vacation or training or assigned somewhere else in the state, there's another nearby judge who's assigned to take his calls or her calls and perform those judicial functions. Uh, you have no constitutional right to appeal in uh, state or federal court. Those are all created by statute. In Missouri, we have three courts of appeals. Uh, we really have one court of appeals, but it sets in three different districts. Uh, one thing that's different about our courts of appeals and our Supreme Court is they can really hear cases anywhere. Uh, similar to the federal system, although uh, there are numerous judges on our courts of appeals, they sit in panels of three primarily. The Western District Court of Appeals, which uh, Jefferson City here, Cole County, in, uh, primarily sits in Kansas City. There are 11 judges in our Western District Court of Appeals, again, that sits in, in panels of three. They sometimes hear their cases out remote uh, at universities, high schools, and so forth for civic education. The Southern District, which is almost the entire uh, southern half of uh, Missouri, uh, sits primarily in Springfield. That's where their main courthouse is, although they, they hear some cases at least once a year in Poplar Bluff in the Southeast Missouri, and again at universities and high schools. The Eastern, and there's seven judges on the Southern District Court of Appeals. The Eastern District Court of Appeals sits primarily in uh, St. Louis. There are 14 judges that comprise the Eastern District Court of Appeals. The old federal building over there is where their, their, their court is primarily housed. But again, they hear cases in Cape Girardeau, hear cases up in Hannibal, and travel some to universities. Um, for most people, if you're dissatisfied uh, with your case, however it started at the circuit court level or the associate circuit court level, or for that matter, the municipal court, which we have uh, many of those in the state of Missouri, your direct appeal would be to the Court of Appeals. And for most cases, that's your last uh, direct appeal of right. In other words, you could say, I'm going to take my case all the way to Missouri Supreme Court, but it doesn't really work that way. For most of you, your, your, your right of appeal, your direct appeal is to the Court of Appeals. We do have some discretionary jurisdiction at the Supreme Court of Missouri. Uh, if you're dissatisfied with your decision at the Court of Appeals, you can file what's called an application for transfer, and that's the state equivalent of that writ of certiorari that we talked about with the Supreme Court of the United States. And again, the rules are almost the same. If you can convince uh, four of us that your case is generally interesting, important to the entire state, or that the courts of appeals in different districts are in conflict, uh, then we can decide to take your case. There's another discretionary uh, jurisdiction called extraordinary writs, uh, which deal if you think the trial judge is acting in excess of their jurisdiction or abusing their discretion, you can apply directly to us. We'll get about 60 of those requests a month 
either for application or transfer or writ for our discretionary jurisdiction. And we'll sustain about six of those. So six out of 60 of those things that we have our discretion, whether to hear or not, uh, that we will take. The other way that you get to the Missouri Supreme Court is there's some categories where you can bypass the Court of Appeals and go directly to the Supreme Court. So when the framers of our state constitution uh, were developing this appellate jurisdiction, there's some things that they thought were so important that you can bypass the Court of Appeals and go straight to the Missouri Supreme Court. And that involves constitutional challenges to, to state or federal statutes, uh, the appeals of all death penalty cases, right? Uh, the writ of quo warranto, which has to do with uh, malfeasance in office, if a, a statewide public official thought that there was some sort of malfeasance. And uh, taxes. So surprise, surprise, uh, way back when we framed our constitution, uh, the framers thought that if you wanted to appeal a tax case, you ought, those are so important, you ought not to have to go to the Court of Appeals first. And so uh, not so many years ago, we had a relatively uh, small uh, in the sense of dollars, like it was, I think it was less than $100, a sales tax issue that came all the way directly to the Supreme Court of the United States, or no, Supreme Court of the State of Missouri. Thank goodness the Supreme Court of the United States did not grant uh, cert on that case. And you might wonder how somebody could afford to take a sales tax case that was worth less than uh, $100 to the Missouri Supreme Court. And it, it might not surprise you that one of the litigants was a lawyer and it was very personal to him, the issue involved. And so uh, he took it to us. And uh, although uh, there were several county commissioners that were surprised by the result, uh, it was certainly unanimous at our court. And it was just one of those things that uh, hadn't got, had gone unchallenged for quite some time, but was a fairly uh, easy question to answer uh, once you put uh, pen to paper and read the statute. So anyway, it, uh, uh, my work is very interesting at the Supreme Court because there is a large section of the cases that we hear that are either constitutional challenges to state or federal statutes, the death penalty cases, or cases that are generally interesting, important to the entire state, or that there's a conflict between the uh, states. One thing that I forgot to mention when we were talking about the Supreme Court of the United States is uh, for their discretionary jurisdiction, there's nine of them, there's seven of us. In order to grant cert, it only takes four judges from the Supreme Court of the United States to make them hear a case. So a minority of the Supreme Court judges can make the majority hear a case. Uh, the rules are at, at uh, the Supreme Court of Missouri and most state Supreme Courts is that a majority of the judges must have to think that it's generally interesting or important. So four of us decide uh, our discretionary uh, cases. In other words, uh, you'd have to convince four of us that uh, your case is generally interesting or important in order for us to uh, decide it. Um, so I told you how the Supreme Court decides who writes their opinions. The Chief Justice does that or the most senior justice uh, in the majority. Uh, I, my first tour of duty at the Missouri Supreme Court was way back in 1988 when I was a law clerk. Each judge gets two young lawyers to work for them. And this tradition goes back as far as that in any event, and I think some distance farther. We have a work equalization method. Uh, you get every seventh case that comes along, and if you're in the majority, 
uh, you would be the author of that case. Uh, if you're not in the majority, uh, whoever the next judge is in line would write the case. So uh, we don't pick the order of our cases, our, our clerks and so forth, uh, along with uh, our legal counsel set the order of our cases. But uh, so we're very, I think, uh, civilized. We have a work equalization method. Every seventh case, as long as you're in the majority, you write it. Uh, if you're not, they'll skip and you get the, you get the next case. So that's how authorship is decided at the Supreme Court of the United States or the Supreme Court of Missouri. Um, okay, so let's see the next slide. <clears throat> so to give you some examples of the types of cases that we hear in state court, uh, all of the state crimes, family law issues, uh, adoptions, divorces, all uh, real property disputes, uh, landlord-tenant actions, uh, malpractice cases, whether that's uh, medical malpractice, legal malpractice, uh, uh, personal injury lawsuits, so all types of torts, whether that's uh, negligence or intentional torts. Um, uh, really, anything that you could think of that doesn't uh, involve a federal question or diversity jurisdiction is heard in the federal courts. Everything from uh, uh, first degree murder down to uh, speeding tickets. So it's a wide array and a variety of cases. Let's see what the next slide brings us. Okay. Oh, selection of uh, Missouri State Court judges. Uh, back in 1940, we adopted a constitutional amendment, which was at that time uh, the first in the nation. Uh, Missouri developed a nonpartisan judicial selection method that applies to all of our courts of appeals and our uh, trial judges and our metropolitan uh, circuits. In the rural areas, uh, judges in Missouri run on a partisan ticket, Republican or Democrat or independent, just like your other public officials. But the idea was to take uh, partisan money and money out of the uh, politics of the judicial selection process. And at the time, uh, there was also some organized crime issues in the state of Missouri that they wanted to take some of the crime bosses out of the selection of the trial judges uh, in, the, in the metropolitan areas. So in Missouri, at the uh, appellate level, there's a commission. Uh, the Chief Justice of Missouri, which we rotate every two years, uh, chairs the commission, but there are three lay people, one from the Southern District Court of Appeals, uh, one from the Western District Court of Appeals, one from the Eastern District, uh, that's appointed by the governor, and they serve six-year terms. So somebody who's not a lawyer from each of the appellate districts on a rotating term. And then there are three lawyers, uh, one from the Eastern District, one from the Western District, and one from the Southern District that are elected by the lawyers. So the Missouri Bar elects a lawyer that from each of those districts. And all of those uh, positions rotate. There's somebody on that commission that's coming on and somebody who's coming off uh, almost every, every year, including the Chief Justice. That group gets together and interviews the applicants. So for example, in 2008, when I applied to be a judge of the Missouri Supreme Court, there were 23 applicants. Uh, that being so few people who applied, uh, and has continued to be the tradition, that commission interviewed every one of us. And then they give the, what they perceive to be the top three candidates to the governor. And the governor then has 60 days 
to review the application, their credentials, and take input from the public. And then the governor uh, appoints uh, within that 60-day period. If the governor would fail to appoint, and no governor has failed to do that, then the commission itself would get to select uh, the judge for the Court of Appeals. Uh, again, the people then have another say, because once you've served a full year, the next general election after you've served a full year, you're put on the ballot. Uh, so if you're a Western District Court of Appeals judge, all of the, every county in the Western District votes whether or not to retain you. Uh, I'm from Watson, Missouri, population 100 from Atchison County. Most of you've never heard of me. So within a couple of years of being put on the uh, uh, Supreme Court, I ran statewide and uh, your choice was, shall we retain the Honorable Zell Fisher, uh, yes or no? And there's a couple different uh, publications uh, that put out information concerning my uh, credentials. Uh, I have to submit opinions that I've written uh, to these folks and they, they review it and they give some sort of uh, recommendation. You also have the ability to listen to me every time we have live oral arguments. Uh, they are broadcast live on the internet. They're also archived and you can read my opinions, uh, which are all published. Uh, you know, the, the governor, uh, uh, and the legislative branch oftentimes uh, get all of their information from whatever source and their decision until they make it uh, is not public. And once they, they do, of course, it's, it's public and they can explain to you why they made their decision. But we judges, we have to do more than just that. We have to show you our work. We have to show you our math. So every Supreme Court uh, decision uh, comes with a written opinion that explains the legal analysis uh, for which we have uh, made our decision. Uh, so again, uh, the judges in the metropolitan areas, Jackson, Clay, Platt, St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and Greene County uh, pick their uh, judges' uh, nonpartisan selection plan. Uh, counties can decide whether or not they want that system or partisan elections. Uh, the only county that's recently switched is Greene County. And within the last five or six years, they've chosen the nonpartisan judicial selection method. And uh, trial judges, associate circuits serve four-year terms, circuits are six-year terms, court of appeals and Supreme Court are 12-year terms. So uh, I last ran in uh, 2010, and so I'll be up for retention in 2022. All judges in Missouri are mandatory retirement at age seven. So, uh, does anybody have any questions for me? Do we have any written questions coming in? Okay. Well, I have one. Okay. How often are judges? Uh, how often are judges denied? At, uh, I mean, when you at the end of twelve years, Supreme Court justices stand for uh, reappointment or confirmation. I guess you'd say. How often do we vote no? Does it never happen? So uh, since 1940, we have never had a, a Supreme Court judge or Court of Appeals judge not get retained. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, you're not allowed to campaign unless you get organized opposition. So on the few occasions uh, where a judge has received organized opposition, they're, then they're allowed to campaign. So there have been some races that are close enough. We certainly have had trial judges in the metropolitan areas who have lost retention elections. It doesn't happen as often as partisan elections, uh, but
but it, it has happened in our trial courts. It's never happened uh, at the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court level. And very rarely has there been uh, organized opposition. Uh, so when I ran for, and I've run both, like I run as a real judge in, in Atchison County. Uh, I ran against a three-time elected uh, Democrat prosecuting attorney, uh, spent less than $500 back then in my election in Ashton County, received 71% of the vote. Uh, when I ran statewide two years later with no opposition, uh, I think I had 63 or 64% uh, retention. Uh, so uh, it's a little unnerving uh, to, uh, to run statewide and not be able uh, to campaign. Uh, especially if your name is Zell and they're trying to figure out where you're from and, and the best you can do is say Watson, Missouri. But, uh, but anyway, it's, uh, it's an interesting process. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I do think uh, on the rare occasions when, when there have been organized opposition that, uh, that you see something closer to a traditional campaign, but it's been extremely rare. Now, those of us who are listening to this call who live closer to the Illinois border, and have TV outlets, you see what uh, partisan elections for Supreme Court uh, races uh, are like. I think the last Illinois race for Supreme Court, uh, there was around $10 million spent on each side of that. And uh, so uh, uh, I'm not sure where that money uh, comes from, but uh, my guess is that it's, that it's out of the same pool that, uh, that takes away from the other elections that are going on at the time. But, but I, but I really don't know. Stan wants to know where do you get information on judges in order to make informed decisions? Uh, so, okay. So there's a, uh, there's a commission that gets together before the elections and, and they uh, uh, receive all sorts of information from the surveys of uh, citizens and also lawyers. And then they give recommendations on whether or not to retain or not retain uh, judges. Uh, I think the Missouri Bar, although it isn't the Missouri Bar that does it, they do publicize all that information. If you go to the Missouri Courts website, you can probably uh, see what may still be up from last election. Uh, but there is an, a, there is an organization uh, that's appointed that evaluates judges. So trial judges, as you might anticipate, are evaluated differently than appellate judges. Uh, there's jury surveys, citizen surveys, lawyer surveys that evaluate your trial judges. Appellate judges, we have to send in a written work, so we'll send opinions and so forth uh, to this same uh, uh, committee or commission, and they review our uh, uh, decisions, both principal opinions, which when we were in the majority, or if we uh, 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 dissented or wrote a concurring opinion, uh, those are also evaluated. Now, one thing about that is it's interesting. You know, if you're a trial judge, we, we, we actually rate you on whether you show up on time. Like, and I, th I think that's okay uh, that, that, that you're ready on whether or not you show up on time. But, but I'm at the mercy of all my colleagues. We, we, all seven of us have to be there before we go on the bench. But uh, all sorts of factors, uh, politeness, courtesy, professionalism, uh, all those things are in, in, in those evaluations. And, and you can see what the commission's considered. Well, thank you, Zell. And thank you for being with us today. And we have to stay on time as well. So we're going to end this session. Uh, we will restart the Zoom session at 10 o'clock. So if you're on Zoom, log out and log immediately, log back in. And uh, we'll be joined by Henry Olson from the Washington Post talking about the upcoming elections at 10 a.m. We'll see you then. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to serve you.
Great job.